little memory Never seem to learn The lessons of history We keep making the same mistakes Over and over and over and over again And then we wonder why We're in the shape we're in Good old boys down at the bar Peanuts and politics They think they know it all They don't know much of nothing Even if one of them was to read a newspaper cover to cover That ain't what's going on Journalism's dead and gone Welcome, my friends, welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 6th day of September, 2009. I'd like to welcome back all my listeners to the Corbett Report podcast and invite them to check out the websites CorbettReport.com and AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com, as well as our new affiliate, KROX Radio 1 at zeropointradio.com. Those of you keeping track at home may have noticed that CorbettReport.com has been extremely busy since my return from vacation three weeks ago, so far having posted three episodes of the podcast, nine interviews, five articles, and three videos. This really is an incredible rate of production, so for those of you who aren't checking CorbettReport.com regularly, you really don't know what you're missing. This week, I'd like to draw special attention to the videos, which of course can be found at youtube.com slash CorbettReport and veracityvideos.com slash CorbettReport. And I'd like to let my listeners know that for the foreseeable future, I plan on releasing two videos a week, including, of course, installments of a new video series that was first released this week, Economics 101. As I say, the first installment of that series, featuring Bob Chapman on sound money versus fiat money, is now up on youtube.com slash CorbettReport and veracityvideos.com slash CorbettReport, with future installments of that series being posted up every Monday. So please keep your eye on the website this Monday for the second installment of Economics 101 with John Williams of ShadowStats.com on unemployment. And a reminder that these Economics 101 interviews cannot be found anywhere else on the website. They will only be available on the videos. So please Continue to get the word out about our videos at youtube.com slash CorbettReport and veracityvideos.com slash CorbettReport. For all the new listeners who may be tuning in for the first time, I'd like to let you know that all of the documents cited in today's episode can be found in a documentation list sorted by time index, which is available under today's episode on the Episodes tab at CorbettReport.com. Finally, before we get to today's real news... I'd like to ask my listeners' help in putting together a future episode of this podcast. We are only three weeks away from episode 100 of the Corbett Report podcast. And on a befittingly celebratory note, episode 100 will be dedicated to the 100 signs that we are winning. Of course, I have my own idea about this topic, but I know that my educated, informed, and engaged audience will have their own ideas about the 100 signs that we are winning. 
So I'd like to enlist your support and your help. I'd like to include some listener ideas in episode 100. So in order to do so, please leave me a voicemail message at 512-553-0297 detailing what you think is a sign that we are winning. Of course, the interpretation of we and winning are entirely up to you. I'm looking for your ideas on this subject. So please leave me a voicemail message at our phone number, 512-553-0297, which is an American phone number. And I will try to incorporate the audio from some of the best voicemail messages we receive in that episode. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from blacklistednews.com, September 5th, 2009. WHO admits to releasing pandemic virus into population via mock-up vaccines. The document on the WHO website linked below states that it is common procedure to release pandemic viruses into the population in order to get a jump ahead of the real pandemic so as to fast-track the vaccine for when it is needed. In Europe, some manufacturers have conducted advanced studies using a so-called mock-up vaccine. Mock-up vaccines contain an active ingredient for an influenza virus that has not circulated recently in human populations and thus mimics the novelty of a pandemic virus. According to the website, such advanced studies can greatly expedite regulatory approval. Today's second real news story comes from RussiaToday.com, 4th of September 2009. U.S. Homeland Security begins hoarding personal data. The White House is unveiling new rules for searching computers, laptops, and other electronic devices when people enter the United States. Civil liberties groups have criticized the measure. The Department of Homeland Security says the measure is needed to detect information about potential terror plots, as well as copyright infringement and child pornography. Human rights groups say these rules violate people's civil liberties, but Harley Geiger, staff counsel from the Center for Democracy and Technology, says what Customs and Border Protection is doing is illegal. Americans have a diminished expectation of privacy at the border, explains Geiger. However, When they search laptops, PDAs, or cell phones, they actually reveal an enormous amount of information about our personal lives, financial records, relationships, medical history, and so forth. These are the things that the Fourth Amendment was designed to protect, and it's being subverted in the name of national security. So, this argument could be made both ways. Today's third real news story, also from RussiaToday.com, 4th of September 2009. White House to collect personal info from social networks. Public watchdogs in America say they've uncovered a secret plan by the White House to harvest personal information from social networking sites like Facebook. The White House is allegedly planning a 12-month contract with social networking sites. People whose information would be retrieved may not be notified, and there would be no restriction on how the White House uses the information. 
Lawyer Nicole Cardell told RT that the White House is going to look mainly for information posted by the executive office of the president. At the same time, she added, people should be fully aware that their personal information could be collected. Today's final real news story comes to us via MediaMonarchy.com, September 2nd, 2009. 42% replace Congress with random people in phone book. 42% of American voters believe that a group of individuals randomly selected from the phone book would do a better job than the politicians currently in Congress, says the latest Rasmussen Reports survey. This number has changed by 9% from last fall, when 33% believed the same thing. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to episode 97 of the Corbett Report, 9-11-09 and the bigger bigger picture. Now, of course, my listeners hardly need to be reminded of this, but it is that time of year again when our minds cast back to that dreadful day eight years ago, which sent this world upon the path that it's on today. The importance of that date still echoes down to this day, and it is still one of the central political issues of our age, as the new boss sounds more and more like the old boss. I'm aware that there's still some who would question or even justify the offense of 9-11. But let us be clear. Al-Qaeda killed nearly 3,000 people on that day. The victims were innocent men, women, and children from America and many other nations who had done nothing to harm anybody. And yet Al-Qaeda chose to ruthlessly murder these people, claimed credit for the attack, and even now states their determination to kill on a massive scale. They have affiliates in many countries and are trying to expand their reach. These are not opinions to be debated. These are facts to be dealt with. These are not opinions to be debated. These are facts to be dealt with. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories concerning the attacks of September the 11th. Malicious lies that attempt to shift the blame away from the terrorists themselves. If you are a listener to this podcast, then I trust you are with me in expressing my utter contempt and disgust for those comments made by President Obama and President Bush in that clip both the actual contents of what they said and everything that they implied. Of course, the raison d'etre of the Corbett Report is to fight against the idea that we are not to investigate these areas and that we must not make inquiries into what really happened on September 11th or, indeed, in any other day in any other part of history. And, of course, that's exactly what we've been doing ever since episode one of this podcast, Investigate 9-11. This year, as indeed almost every year since 9-11, there have been a number of extremely important stories for 9-11 Truth, including, of course, from April of 2009, a peer-reviewed paper published in the Open Chemical Physics Journal 
by Stephen Jones and Niels Herrett, which exposed, according to Raw Story's headline, quote, study claims highly engineered explosive found in WTC rubble. Turning to Colorado911visibility.org, from June of this year, we have a video from KBDI Denver, which aired 9-11 Press for Truth on one of its fundraisers, as well as talking to people like 9-11 victims' family member group leader Bob McElvain. Or we can turn to more of the prominent, extremely prominent people who came out in favor of 9-11 Truth over the course of the last year, including, of course, in July, when Colleen Rowley, Times Person of the Year for her whistleblowing on the FBI in 2002 and their failure in the run-up to 9-11. And, of course, she went public demanding a new 9-11 investigation this year. And, of course, we can also get that from a Raw Story article, Ex-FBI Agent, Why I Support a New 9-11 Investigation. But of all of the incredible 9-11 truth-related stories this year, perhaps no two are more important than this one from FBI.gov from July 15, 2009, former P-Tech officer arrested for SBA loan fraud, or this one from the Brad blog September 2, 2009, Sibel Edmonds' deposition disclosures, congressional bribery, blackmail, and espionage. Yes, the P-Tech story which, of course, we first touched on back in episode 31 of the Corbett Report podcast and later in more detail in episode 45, and, of course, in numerous recent articles, as well as Sybil Edmonds' bombshell revelations about the many things that she learned in her time as a translator for the FBI and, of course, since becoming a whistleblower. These are two examples of what I mean when I talk about the bigger picture of 9-11, talking about the intelligence ties which show that 9-11 go well beyond the scopes of merely buildings falling down in an unusual manner, however important that information might be. Likewise, the way in which enterprise architecture software can be used to coordinate and plan and perpetrate the 9-11 attacks is absolutely central to understanding what really happened on 9-11. And yet, neither of these stories has received so much attention as things like the nanothermate hypothesis of the World Trade Center destruction. The bigger picture of 9-11 looks at precisely how the people at the heads of the most important investigative agencies and intelligence services in the United States government consciously acted to stop individuals from actually stopping the attacks. Time and time and time and time again, when you look at the history of what happened in the run-up to 9-11, you see people in the system, in the FBI, and in other agencies who found information about the attacks ahead of time and were actively working to stop them. And they themselves were in turn stopped by their superiors who were inevitably promoted as a result. Understanding this dynamic in all of its multitudinous forms is absolutely central to forming an understanding of 9-11. When you start to look at the deeper background, for example, of software like P-Tech and some of the people who were involved in creating it and then allowing it to fall into the hands of known terrorist financiers, you encounter the types of issues that most of the so-called 9-11 debunkers have never and will never go near with a 100-foot pole because this type of information truly threatens to expose the real culprits behind 9-11.
This is a topic that came up in an interview that I conducted recently with Prison Planet Forum member Anti Illuminati, who has been doing a lot of painstaking research on the background, the development, the implementation, and the possible future of P-Tech and various enterprise architecture software. That interview has quickly gained notoriety online and has become a much-downloaded interview, so if you haven't yet done so, please check it out on the Interviews tab on CorbettReport.com. But right now, let's listen to a short extract from that interview, in which Anti-Illuminati, I think, makes this point effectively. You want to, you want to look into the heart of the New World Order to see how, they're, how they operate and how they think? Do, go and research a guy by the name of Thomas Barnett. That's B-A-R-N-E-T-T. Look into that guy, and he's got a, there's a video that he has. Where he, he, came up, he created a book called The Pentagon's New Map. talks about something called the Leviathan Force and the Sysadmin Force, which is the, it's, it's, all ties into, it's all part of continuity of government. He's a hardcore New World Order uh, you know, pawn, but you know it's kind of he's he's a he's just a mid-level or low-level guy that is pushing their agenda and is for total tyranny and fascism. When you you when you look into their their key people like that 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 expose that when you know when I say key I mean that in the context of that the contents of what they talk about they're they're openly admitting and they're revealing to you the real. Um, you know, even though it's unclassified and so forth, they're they're showing you a window into the real operations of the, of the New World Order that they really don't want you to figure out. They don't. You're not. You, you know, they don't really want you to know that. You see, I mean, it's not like they don't think anybody would ever figure it out, but they want you to be like like in your former interview that the other guy that interviewed you, um, where you were talking about everybody talks about controlled demolition. No, no, no. We look at everybody. You look at the big picture, and everything becomes so much more into focus. And uh, it, it gives you the more you know, the more the more incentive and the more um, conviction you'll have uh, to know that you know the truth. And I would like to see a, a mass class action lawsuit. Um, you know, and especially in light of Sibel Edmonds' uh, rev, you know revelations recently against the people who we have prosecutable evidence to bring people into court. I mean, as hard as that would be to do, it's uh, the, re- the real criminals who carried out 9-11, the real criminals who carried out 775 and so forth, they're not, in, they're, not in, they're not being prosecuted. They need to be. They need to be held accountable. You, you know, but... Keep an eye, keep, keep in mind, looking at George Mason University, I'm going to put, like I said, everything I just talked about, I'm going to put links to it in a thread. And look into Alexander Levis, look at the stuff that I posted on the Prison Planet forum about him with all the documentation. And you will find that he is one of the key guys and that even Indira Singh herself in, one, in her interview with Michael Corbin said that Yasin Al-Khadi himself was a front man he was, he was a, he, they selected him because, in her own words, he would be able to handle the, um, the cover-up to, uh, you know, to other people in the government. I'm not exactly sure how she worded it. She'd be able to manage the, uh, you know, 
he, he basically served as good perception management to keep your eyes off of, like, say, Dick Cheney and other people and so forth, you know, and, and just, just flat out the Department of Defense. All those uh, people like him are there to ob- obfuscate and kind of, I mean, I'm not saying he wasn't, you know, I'm not saying anything that was said about him previously isn't true. It's just that you need to see through these people. You need to look, you need to look through them and see who are the players here, who engineered this stuff, you know, who's, you know, what's, who are, you know, what's, what's, the, what are all the, the details that go, go around, you know, the surround everything. And then, and then you get to where you really find out what's, uh, what this is all about. Once again, anti-Illuminati of the Prison Planet Forum. And of course, for those of you who have not yet done so, not only can you check out that interview, but by clicking on the documentation tab of that interview on CorbettReport.com, you'll find a link to the thread that anti-Illuminati mentioned in that brief segment, which contains links to all of the information talked about in that entire interview and all of the figures and dates and documents mentioned and it is quite voluminous, so that's as good a place as any, I suppose, to start delving into the big picture, which is to say, all of those pieces of evidence that lead us into the people, places, events, companies, dates, names, and documents, which tie together things that begin to paint a much larger picture of what happened on 9-11-2001 than merely the collapse of buildings or the suspicious crashes of planes. Indeed, there was much more going on on that day, and in order to understand even just one day in history, we must start delving into history in general. And that is the beginning of the big picture. So, so far we've looked at things like the Sibel Edmonds story and the P-Tech story as ways of getting a foothold into the bigger picture of 9-11, but it can be extremely intimidating to start approaching these very complex subjects. Certainly I have tried in previous episodes of this podcast and will continue to try to put these issues into perspective and to provide documentation to help my listeners gain a handle on some of this information, which can be quite distributed and quite difficult to pin down. And of course there are many others out there who are helping to do the same. People in all sorts of walks of life, in all ways of activism, from anti-Illuminati himself on the prisonplanet.com forum, to people like Nathan Moulton, with his activist DVD at activistmovie.com. People are attempting to collate, process, and distribute this information. But just in the last two weeks, an incredible breakthrough has occurred. For all of those who are looking for another invaluable resource to try to gain a handle on this bigger picture, and that is the Core of Corruption YouTube channel. Of course, listeners to this podcast will remember Core of Corruption as that documentary by filmmaker and activist Jonathan Elinoff, which we featured in a previous podcast episode, Biting into the Core. And of course, my listeners will likely remember that the key feature of the Core of Corruption documentaries is actual clips from real original news broadcasts aired on NBC, CBS, ABC, Primetime Network News, from years past that demonstrate in the corporate controlled media's own words some of the very stories that we are talking about. Well, just in the last two weeks, Jonathan Elinoff has taken the extraordinary and extraordinarily appreciated measure of putting up 
over 150 clips of news broadcasts as they originally aired related to issues like the big picture of 9-11. So, instead of merely talking about the suspicious ways in which the 9-11 hijackers were able to gain access to the United States, for example, we can now merely point them to the controlled corporate media. There are new disclosures tonight as well about some of the holes in America's safety net. A report just out from the staff of the 9-11 Commission says the 19 hijackers were able to get into the United States despite information on their travel documents that should have raised some big red flags. Could it happen again? Here's NBC's Justice Department correspondent Pete Williams. It's a myth, the report says, that all the 19 hijackers entered the U.S. legally. Some clearly did, like hijacker leader Mohammed Atta, whose actual visa is shown publicly for the first time. But three of the hijackers on board the plane that crashed into the Pentagon had on their visa applications what the report calls indicators of Islamic extremism linked to al-Qaeda. The three were Khalid al-Midar, Salem al-Hazmi, whose state-issued ID cards are shown here, and al-Hazmi's brother Nawaf. The report does not say what the terrorism red flag was, since it's still classified, but says the intelligence community didn't catch it or explain it to border control agents. A continuing problem, the 9-11 Commission staff today told Congress. We can do all the great intelligence work we want, but if it's not available to uh, our point people on the line every day, then it's not making a difference. Of the actual hijacker passports, only this burn fragment of Ziad Jarrah's is shown, recovered from the wreckage of Flight 93 that crashed in Pennsylvania. But the report says when two other hijackers applied for their visas, their documents contained another warning sign. Phony travel stamps intended to cover up their travel to Afghanistan to attend terror training camps. Border control, the staff concludes, is still too lax. But Homeland Security officials say three critical areas are much improved. We in our country can rest assured that both people, all three people, cargo and conveyances, are being examined and screened uh, dramatically more effectively than they were uh, on 9-11. That assessment is shared by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the 9-11 mastermind, who told U.S. interrogators that closer attention to immigrants has made al-Qaeda operations more difficult. Nonetheless, the State Department conceded today that even with stricter border control, a determined terrorist can still find a way to slip in. Pete Williams, NBC News, Washington. Now, of course, that being a controlled corporate media whitewash, obviously the information presented there has to be taken in context and with a huge grain of salt. But at the very least, that report can lead us into some very interesting areas. Again, areas that the 9-11 debunkers don't like to talk about. Now, of course, one of those areas involves the very two people singled out in that report as two of the people that were issued visas inappropriately to enter the country, and that is Al-Hazmi and Al-Maidar. Of course, they should never have entered the country, and of course it was bureaucratic bungling which allowed them to enter the country. This comes from LAWeekly.com, Bush's biggest mistake, from an article written in 2004. Quote, The CIA had spied on an Al-Qaeda meeting in Kuala Lumpur that occurred the first week of January 2000. Within days, the CIA knew that Al-Maidar and Al-Hazmi had been present, and the agency had enough information on the two to add them to a State Department watch list that could have been used to deny them entry to the United States. Yet, it did not do so. In early March 2000, the CIA learned that a week after the Malaysia gathering, Al-Hazmi traveled to Los Angeles. 
It is also known that Al-Maidar had accompanied Al-Hazmi part of the way, but the CIA did consider the possibility that Al-Maidar, too, had been heading toward the United States. In February 2000, the two settled in San Diego. They rented a place and obtained driver's licenses using their own names. They took flight lessons. In July 2000, Al-Hazmi applied for a visa extension. In December, he moved to Arizona with another 9-11 hijacker. And at some point, Al-Hazmi's brother came to the United States. He too would become one of the 9-11 hijackers. Because the CIA failed to tell the FBI until August 23, 2001, that Al-Hazmi and Al-Maidar were in the United States, the FBI never went looking for them. Had the FBI been searching for them, it well could have found them. The two had had numerous contacts with a longtime FBI informant in San Diego. The FBI agent who handled this informant told the intelligence committees, I'm sure we could have located them, and we could have done it within a few days. Unfortunately, the CIA was 17 months late in passing information on the pair to the FBI, and then FBI headquarters did not disseminate it to the FBI office in San Diego until after September 11th. All this means that the CIA had a bead on two of the hijackers who could have led the feds to the others, and it did virtually nothing. If I were a 9-11 victim's family member, this would keep me up at night and crying during the day. End quote. Now, of course, what's casually buried in that story is, yes, Al-Hazmi and Al-Maidar did have very deep connections to an FBI informant in the San Diego area, just like how the man who was supplying the actual explosives to the WTC 1993 bombers was himself an FBI informant who actually wanted to replace the real explosives with dummy chemicals, but was overruled by his FBI handler who told the FBI informant to give the explosives to the bombers, which they then used to bomb the World Trade center. And of course, while we're on the issues of visas issued to the 9-11 hijackers, we can also always return to Michael Springman and his bombshell testimony about his time as head of the Visa Bureau at the U.S. consulate in Jeddah, from which 15 of the 19 hijackers received their visas, many of them, of course, on the Visa Express program, which was instituted shortly before 9-11. And of course, we all remember that his testimony was that the visas that he was denying to suspected terrorists were being approved and overruled by higher-ups in the CIA in order to help out their asset, Osama bin Laden. So again, just scratching the surface of these corporate-controlled media whitewash reports, one finds the pieces of information that point directly at the heart of those who were responsible for making the 9-11 attacks happen. But wait, there's more. Yes, the Core of Corruption YouTube archive, which was just released by Jonathan Elinoff, contains many, many, many other incredibly valuable news broadcasts on a wide range of topics, like this one. Good evening. A congressional committee has concluded that President John Kennedy and civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr., both of them, were probably killed as the result of conspiracies. 
House Assassinations Committee wound up its two-year study by recommending that the Justice Department look into both cases. We have details from Bob Kerr in Washington. The committee's summary of findings says President Kennedy was probably assassinated as a result of a conspiracy, that its evidence establishes a high probability that two gunmen fired at the motorcade, one from the grassy knoll firing a shot that missed, the other Lee Harvey Oswald, who fired the shots that struck the president from the Texas School Book Depository. And, according to the committee, individual members of anti-Castro Cuban groups and individual members of organized crime may have been involved. The committee was unable to identify the second gunman or the extent of any conspiracy. The committee concluded that President Kennedy did not receive adequate Secret Service protection in Dallas, that the CIA was deficient in sharing information before and after, that the Justice Department and Warren Commission failed to pursue possible conspiracies and made their conclusions too definite. The committee met privately last night for five hours, debating its conclusions. As he left, one member said yesterday's acoustical testimony changed his mind about conspiracy. I had Senator Irvin's view about polygraph tests, that it was modern witchcraft, and I thought maybe this was a little more modern witchcraft, like polygraph tests. But I thought it was... that I thought the witnesses were persuasive that it was based on... Uh, rather simple, incontrovertible uh, mathematical principles, uh, sound bouncing off of walls, and if your calculations and measurements are right, uh, there's nothing arcane or tricky about it. In the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, the committee concluded from circumstantial evidence, the likelihood of conspiracy and, as in the Kennedy case, that the Justice Department and FBI failed to adequately pursue conspiracy. The committee says James Earl Ray fired the shot that killed Dr. King and that Ray probably stalked King for a period preceding the assassination. The House Assassinations Committee is the first official body to conclude that the assassinations resulted from conspiracies. Now, the committee recommends that the Justice Department review the findings and analyze whether further official investigation is warranted in either case. Bob Kerr, NBC News, Washington. What? Conspiracy? But wait, if there are only two things that I've learned from the so-called skeptics community, led by such wonderful, bright, erudite, intelligent, articulate, and brave thinkers like Michael Shermer, then it's one that there is no such thing as a large and complicated conspiracy because something of that size and magnitude would necessarily be exposed by whistleblowers within days or weeks of it happening, and two, that government investigations into a matter are always correct. So what if the government concludes there was a conspiracy? But there are no conspiracies. The government says there was a conspiracy, but there are no conspiracies, but the government says there was a conspiracy. Everything Harry tells you is a lie. Remember that. Everything Harry tells you is a lie. Now listen to this carefully, Norman. I am lying. You say you are lying, but if everything you say is a lie, then you are telling the truth, but you cannot tell the truth because everything you say is a lie, but you lie, you tell the truth, but you... Cannot for you, lo illogical, illogical. 
Please explain. You are human. Only humans can explain their behavior. Please explain. I am not programmed to respond in that area. And thus, Randy and Shermer and all the other kowtowing sycophants to power who cloak themselves in a guise of skepticism disappeared in a poof of logic, and they were not missed. But in all seriousness, yes, this is an incredible resource that Jonathan Elenoff has released to the online community in order to spread to the world. The importance of these 150-plus videos that are now available up on the Core of Corruption YouTube channel cannot be overestimated. This, of course, is exactly what compelled me to write the recent article on CorbettReport.com, Activist Releases Archive of Suppressed News Videos, and I'd like to thank all of those listeners who have so far helped to get that article out to others in order to inform them about this incredibly precious resource. And... As I have stressed before and will continue to stress, rather than simply accepting this information like a passive receptacle, all of us have to take the responsibility of preserving, protecting, disseminating, and educating others about this information into our own hands. And you can do that in any way you feel fit. Personally, I'm going to take a page out of my own book and attempt to re-upload the entire archive piece by piece to veracityvideos.com slash Corbett Report so it will have another backup online somewhere. I certainly hope my listeners will do their part to get the word out about this incredible resource. But this is where we start to enter what I call the bigger, bigger picture of 9-11. If P-Tech and Edmonds and the intelligence connections and the visas and all of those things which show the context of 9-11 are the bigger picture of 9-11, then the bigger, bigger picture are all of those things which show that 9-11 was indeed just one day in a long pattern of deception, cover-up, smoke and mirrors, cloak and dagger, and, indeed, a pattern that leads inevitably toward the new world order. Personally, I think that this is what 9-11 Truth has always and will always be about, connecting 9-11 false flag inside job to all of those other pieces of information which together start to expose a much, much bigger picture. Perhaps that's why labels like the 9-11 Truth Movement seem so constrictive, because of course it's about much, much more than 9-11 itself. And as any listener to this podcast knows, there are numerous other ways in which 9-11 connects to the ebb and flow of history. By connecting and bringing together a number of seemingly disparate movements under one umbrella, the idea of a bigger, bigger picture of 9-11 truth helps foster the type of awakening, the revolution of the mind, that this podcast is dedicated to. That is why I was very excited to see that this year, in New York City, there will be a conference taking place on the 9-11 anniversary weekend, organized by well-known journalist, activist, author, and 9-11 researcher, Sander Hicks. This, however, is not merely a 9-11 truth conference. It promises to be something broader 
and perhaps to unveil a little bit more of the bigger, bigger picture. The conference is called We Demand Transparency, and details can be found online at wedemandtransparency.com. The tagline for the conference is The Conference for Peace, Truth, and a New Economics. And two of the slogans promoted on the homepage are Unite the Peace and Truth Movements, Resist Bailouts, Cover-Ups, and War. Of course, this conference will feature speakers that one would expect at a 9-11 Truth Conference, including former guests of the Corbett Report Richard Gage and Barry Zwicker, and also William Bergman, the person that we first learnt about in the podcast episode dedicated to the 9-11 money trail as a former Federal Reserve worker who uncovered a possible connection between a $5 billion surge in M1 money supply in August 2001 and 9-11 foreknowledge, who will be speaking at this conference and who we had the great chance of interviewing earlier this week. So please check out that interview if you have not yet done so. But in addition to those speakers, there will be many other speakers who will be touching on a broad range of subjects, including, of course, Ellen Brown, the author of Web of Debt, a book dedicated to exposing the lies of the Federal Reserve System. There will also be presenters who are Canadian peace and truth activists, critics of the FBI anthrax investigation, New York City squatter activists, and many others who, it seems, will bring even broader perspective to the issues that we are all facing. In order to get a better understanding of what this conference is about and how it might connect to the bigger, bigger picture of 9-11, I had the honor this week of speaking with Mr. Hicks about the conference. Of course, this interview is available from the homepage, CorbettReport.com. Right now, let's listen to a short extract from that interview, where I discuss the idea of placing 9-11 in a broader context with Sander Hicks. Well, certainly over the years, you have uh, built up a name for yourself within the 9-11 Truth community for your book, your reporting, your research, your activism. But even a cursory glance at your journalism and activism shows that you have an extremely broad range of interests. So in your own words, how does your 9-11 activism fit into your overall body of work? Yeah, you're right. It's an obsession, and it's almost like sometimes I check myself and I wonder, am I too obsessed with 9-11. You know, I don't want to be a geek who's just obsessed with trivia or facts about uh, uh, a situation or a historical occurrence. What I always try to do is step back, and I try to put it in historical context and say that 9-11 was not the only false flag operation. And false flag, by false flag, we mean a military operation in which uh, there's an attack and it's blamed on an enemy, but the enemy that it's blamed on was not actually the perpetrator of the attack. And there are historical precedents for this. There's the USS Liberty uh, in uh, 67 uh, in the Mediterranean, which was attacked uh, uh, by Israelis. Uh, it was a U.S. warship. There's the Gulf of Tonkin, who, which sparked off the Vietnam War. Uh, there's questions people have about Pearl Harbor. There's the Spanish-American War. And there's the Mexican-American War, both of which were started with false flag attacks. So there, there's actually a rich, rich vein to mine in, in terms of the history of false provocations sparking off a war that would that would have been extremely unpopular if there hadn't been some sort of emotive motivating force. Well, well, I ask that because I see that you're organizing what seems to me to look like a very different type of 9-11 conference with We Demand Transparency. 
And so tell, tell people what you're planning and, and how this conference came about. Okay, great. Yeah, I realize that that's, that's uh, also part of your question. And so I, I do want to go there. There's a need, I think, uh, especially in this time of recession, a lot of people have questions about how did the economy go so, uh, uh, get, get so disrupted so quickly. Uh, I, so I think there's a natural curiosity right now to talk more about economics, not just about 9-11 truth or the truth about war and peace issues, but also how does economics impact us. And it obviously impacts us a lot. I personally lost my job uh, this year being the head of a small uh, fair trade coffee house company that had a couple of locations open in New York City. But, uh, you know, so personally, you know, it's personal for me. The, the, the economy, the global economy, the New York economy, the, the United States economic meltdown personally impacted my life. So I'm trying to, I guess, exploit the natural affinity that a lot of the 9-11 truth people already have to ask questions about the Federal Reserve System and to ask questions about Wall Street's uh, control of the White House uh, or the, the, the role of special interests in U.S. politics. And uh, I think that there's also a lot of uh, burnout happening in the 9-11 truth movement to the extent that people are asking, you know, what, what next? You know, people don't just want to go to the same old conference and see people they've already seen before. You know, they wouldn't get anything out of that. So I'm trying to be provocative and stimulating and new. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to cross-pollinate the movement. You know, I do know a lot of people uh, in the anti-war movement, uh, uh, critical economic thinkers on the left and in the center, and so I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to make it almost like a, a, a punk show or a rock and roll show in which you don't just get a bill of goods, you don't get what you what you came for. You get you get uh, surprised. You get your mind expanded because something happens or somebody says something that you weren't expecting, and it, it challenges you to think. It challenges you to to process and to figure out you know what of this new information. Do I accept? What do I want more information about? What do I reject? And uh, that should be the process. And you know, there's also there's people on my bill uh, that uh, on the conference that are that are controversial, and people are saying to me, "How could you? How could you blah 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 with this person? And how could you possibly give this person some time?" And it's like, hey, you know, I'm not even personally endorsing 100% of everything that each person has ever said that would be impossible you know and there's no litmus test this is not about political correctness uh this is more about you know again it's it's i'm not using a politically correct aesthetic i'm using much more of a punk rock aesthetic in which surprising the audience or shocking the audience or provoking the audience to participate is more important than pleasing the audience or uh placating the audience well, I like that idea of, of cross-pollinating with uh, some of the other movements that are going on, and I think that's important. I guess some people may try to construe this as some sort of dilution of the 9-11 Truth message, but personally, I think this is the direction that 9-11 Truth was always heading in, which is to say that 9-11, however horrific, it was, it, it was simply one day in a very large and complex world historical pattern that was enabled by a complex economic, political, corporate infrastructure. So to me, it seems that 9-11 Truth was always fundamentally about challenging that structure and attempting to follow the links between 9-11 and the rest of history. So what's your take on that topic? 
Yeah, that's exactly it. In fact, I'm thinking about my introductory remarks, and I, I'm thinking what I have to emphasize is that what we are studying when we study 9-11 is not, we're not just studying the science and the data, uh, and we don't, we're not just, again, obsessed with uh, one day. It's more like what we're studying is something extremely important. What we are studying is the nature of power in our time. This is how power works. These are the dynamics of political power and how it manipulates the media, how it owns the media, uh, and how, as a counterpoint, let's look at our, the success of the 9-11 truth movement. You know, we don't own the television stations. We don't own the radio stations. We don't own too many newspapers. And yet, just by the power of truth, the power of what, you know, what is called buzz or, you know, word-of-mouth marketing, uh, the power of uh, having technology like the internet and uh, you know the DVD, the burner, you know the, the free DVD. I think is going to be uh, someday recorded by historians as being a, an extremely powerful tool for countering propaganda. You know this, this idea of we have people on the street in every major city in America giving away gifts. You know, giving away the gift of eight hours worth of, of really interesting underground movie footage, uh, you know, stuff about Waco, Oklahoma City, and 9-11. And uh, so, so, yeah, so uh, to answer your question, that's, that's, a, that's a great uh, point. That, that really, that to really do this, you can't just be obsessed about one day. You have to really step back and say, you know, what, what, what are we really doing here when we study 9-11? It's not, it's, it's, we're, we're, we're really trying to get under the hood and get really curious about political power. Once again, please go to wedemandtransparency.com for more information about the conference or to purchase tickets for the conference if you are lucky enough to be in the New York City area this 9-11 anniversary weekend. Now, just so that no one takes what I am saying today out of context or confuses the message, I am certainly not attempting to say that 9-11 truth in and of itself and the various forms of 9-11 research are not extremely important and still at the very core of exposing the larger paradigm that we're in. All I'm saying is that, of course, 9-11 truth was only one day in history, and it connects forwards and backwards into a much, much, much bigger picture through which we can come to a better understanding of 9-11 itself. My hat's off again to people like Nathan Moulton at ActivistMovie.com, Sander Hicks at WeDemandTransparency.com, and of course Jonathan Elinoff at CoreOfCorruption.com for their incredible efforts in continuing to expose this information to others and to fit it into its broader context. The only way to honor the fallen victims of 9-11 is to never stop our search for transparency accountability, and justice. That's it for today's episode. I am James Corbett, thanking you for joining me as always, and asking you to join me again next week for episode 98 of the Corbett Report, Weaponized Psychology. Know your enemy, 
know yourself. That's the politic. George Bush is way worse than Ben Laden is. Know your enemy, know yourself. That's the politic. FBI, CIA, the real terrorists. Know your enemy, know yourself. That's the politic. George Bush is way worse than Ben Laden is. Know your enemy, know yourself. That's the politic. CIA, FBI, the real terrorists. You got to watch what you say in these days and times. It's a touchy situation, a lot of fear and emotion. September 11th, televised worldwide suicide planes falling like bombs from out the sky. They wasn't aiming at us, not in my house. They hit the world trade, the Pentagon, and almost got the White House. Not everybody walking around patriotic. How we gonna fight to keep freedom when we ain't got it? You wanna stop terrorists? Start with the U.S. imperialists. Ain't no track record like America. See, Ben Laden was trained by the CIA. But I guess if you a terrorist for the U.S., then it's okay, huh? They try to make us think we crazy. But I know what they do when they trying to put us back in slavery. Check it to get on welfare. You gotta get your fingerprints. Soon you gotta do eye scans to get your benefits. Now they got them cards to swipe. Ain't no more food stamps. Should've seen it coming. It's too late to get am. And everything got a barcode. So they know what you got when you got it and what you still owe. You seen them projects lately. You better watch it. Why they got us surrounded if money is the object? Why do you satellites to keep track of the criminals? Why they putting jails in school? Is it subliminal? Cameras everywhere to protect us from one another Or is it the undercover disguise of big brother And even freedom of speech is limited Mad leaders done spoke up and look at what these crackers did Know your enemy, know yourself, that's the politic George Bush is way worse than Ben Laden is Know your enemy, know yourself, that's the politic FBI, CIA, the real terrorists Know your enemy, know yourself, that's the politic George Bush is way worse than Ben Laden is Know your enemy, know yourself, that's the politic Politics, CIA, FBI, the real terrorists. And you ain't got to believe me. Go ahead and listen to Bush, the dope pusher on the TV. What you think the war is for? Cause the greedy wanting more and more. We be hustling in the corridor. I would never join the military. One soldier to another nigga, holler if you hear me. Going out to the best sons and daughters. Don't be a lamb getting led to the slaughter. I'ma keep riding when my mama release. Cause they don't stop us now, dog. Freedom before peace. Uh, they got a plan for us. We got a plan for them. And this time we gon' win. Who in? You out, you in. No doubt we men. Ain't no riding the fence. It's called I've been down to the trade center every year with my family. This year I was with my other family and it felt better than anything I've ever felt before. I mean, the truth be out there and, and, and know that, that I'm fighting for something that's right and something that's, that's American because that is the American way. My father was a true patriot. My father hung up the flag every day and took it down every night. My father was a true, true patriot and I will follow in his footsteps and I, I try so hard. I'm going to try till the death of me to get him justice. Not only him, the 3,000 others that died too. Yeah, I, I, when I go down to the trade center, I, and I, I don't start crying until I actually see other families mourning for their, their, their family members. The people that went in there just for a nine to five job, just worked there every day, doing whatever, you know, their office jobs. And I, when I see that, that just upsets me more because my father knew, knew what he was doing. And um, on another note, actually, the fire department, they took us down about maybe two months, three months after, after it happened, um, and they let us listen to uh, the recordings of, of their, you know, their radio contact. And I actually heard my father's last words was, calm, 
come as as we're talking right now. He was he said, I'm trapped in an elevator. I'm gonna try to hack my way out. Um, I'll you know get back to you when boom. That's it. Radio contact lost. And you know when I heard that, that was just that made me so sick to my stomach, and it still makes me sick. And uh, I just wanted to say this: this guy outside actually just told me uh, stop talking about five years ago, and I told him I will never stop talking about five years ago. Yeah. Even, even if it's 20 years from now, 30 years from now, I'm never going to stop.